The prophetess Anna, she only mentioned once in the whole of the Bible. The sum total of the information that we're given about her is contained in just three verses and nothing is recorded about what she said. How then do we present a study on the subject, the vision of the prophetess Anna? Well, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to start with looking at vision as a concept. Then we're going to look at the prophetess Anna herself. And then we're going to bring our thoughts to a conclusion by considering and looking at the vision of Anna in the light of what we will have already seen by that time. Now, when we think of vision, I'm sure that many of us would go to that phrase, where there is no vision, the people perish. And we would conclude, and quite rightly so, that therefore we must have a vision. But that is not the sum total of that phrase. We can get an awful lot out of it if we just delve a little bit deeper. And to do that, we must go to where we get that phrase from. So let's turn to our first reference for tonight. And that's from Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18. So Proverbs chapter 29 and the 18th verse reads, where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. And so often we just skim over the rest of the verse and don't take much notice. But the truth of the matter is that to get the full benefit of this verse, we need to appreciate that here is a form of Hebrew parallelism, one in which the second phrase is opposite to the first. So what we want to do is we want to open up this a little bit further and say, well, what exactly does this mean? There's our phrase, where there is no vision, the people perish. If there's no parallelism involved in here, we would simply get the opposite phrase, where there is vision, the people do not perish. But God doesn't put that. Instead, he puts this second phrase, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. And God is trying to tell us something about the first phrase by giving us this parallelism of the opposite, but saying it in a different way. So let's just unpick this a little. Where there is no vision is opposite to keeping the law. Now, that being the case, we can deduce, therefore, that having no vision is equal to not keeping the law. And so, where there is no vision, the law is not kept, and the people perish. And suddenly we start to appreciate that there's more to this idea of not having a vision than first meets the eye. It's all bound up with the fact that the law is not kept if there is no vision. Let's now turn to the second phrase and do the same with that. He that keepeth the law is opposite to there is no vision. And unpicking that further, we see that keeping the law is equal to having a vision. And because of that, happy is he that does this. Not as happy as he that keeps the law, but happy is he that keeps the law and has a vision at the same time. That's what makes the people happy. So keeping the law with perception and understanding, people would have had a vision of how it pointed forward to the Messiah, to Christ. But if they didn't have a perception and understanding of the law, 
they wouldn't have had a vision and they would therefore perish. Now, thinking about this in terms of the principle for us, we get two lessons from this verse particular. First of all, that having a vision involves keeping God's commandments. It's no good just having a vision, having the vision of the kingdom and of Jesus coming back and then not doing what God's asked us. God expects us to have the vision, but to also have keeping God's commandments in the forefront of our minds. The second lesson is similar to it, but we get a different angle. Keeping God's commandments involves having a vision. You see, it's no good just keeping God's commandments as like a tick list. I've done that one. Oh, yes, I've done that one without having a vision. Having a vision makes those commandments real to us. And the fact is that we actually need to have both aspects in our lives. A balance of both of these things is so important. Now, what is more is that we need to keep God's commandments with perception and understanding. There's a wonderful verse in John's epistle, and I want us to go there, please. We're going to go to John, 1st John, and to the 5th chapter, and verse 3. So 1st John 5 and verse 3, I think it's a, a, a verse that is often missed out. Not missed out when we read it, but missed out in terms of when have we actually come across someone quoting this as part of their talk? First John 5, verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, and we're talking about our love to God, which becomes very obvious with the next phrase. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And I think that's the point. We rarely come across loving God and keeping his commandments at the same time. And yet that's what it's all about. But there's more to it. The last phrase, and his commandments are not grievous. To love God, we need to do what he wants us to do. We want to do what is right and pleasing to him, but to do it cheerfully. Keeping God's commands must make us happy. That brings us right back to that phrase, that second phrase. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Now, if we're honest, doing the things that please God all of the time is difficult. But what about doing what pleases God all of the time and being happy about it? That's even more difficult. And it led me to think about the hymn that we're going to sing at the end by my request. Brother Isaac Collier really pulls us into this whole vision of the time when Christ will come back. And in the second verse, it says, we shall be like him, pure in heart and sinless. This is the time when we won't have to work at doing what's right all the time and being happy about it. This will happen. In the second verse, he says, we shall be like him, raised above all weakness. You know the times when we would do the things that we should and we find we don't do them? Or we don't do the things that we know we should have done? 
And we say there were moments of weakness. We will be raised above all weakness. It won't be a problem. But it goes on. Forever past all weariness. When you've been on two or three Skype meetings in the day, and there's the last one at the end of the day, and really to go through another one, and to go through it cheerfully, the weariness sometimes takes over. But not when we shall be like him. We will be forever past all weariness. And then there's those times when we fail to do what's right in God's eyes because we are in pain, whether it be physical pain or mental pain or emotional pain. When we shall be like him, we will be forever past all that. And we'll be able to do all the things we know we should with cheerfulness and at all times. These are the things that so often prevent us from pleasing God at all times and doing it cheerfully. But with a vision of the time shortly to come to pass, when we will always work righteousness, if we could have that in our mind as our vision, then that might just help us to strive with those moments of weakness, with those moments of pain. Well, before we take a look at Anna, let's just consider an example of vision in the Old Testament. I'd like you to come with me to First Chronicles chapter 17. Now, some will undoubtedly think, oh, we know what First Chronicles 17 is all about. There'll be many of us that will say, why is he going here? Thought Chronicles was just a book of names. I want us to come in at verse 10, but I actually want us to come in at the end of verse 10, the last sentence. Furthermore, I tell thee that the Lord will build thee an house, and it shall come to pass, when thy days be expired, that thou must go to be with thy fathers, that I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me an house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my mercy away from him, as I took it from him that was before thee, but I will settle him in mine house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forevermore. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Yes, it's the promises to David, isn't it? We so often think, no, 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 th those are in 2 Samuel 7. But of course, they're here as well. And there's one thing I want us to notice, which, of course, isn't in 2 Samuel 7. And that is that here we're told that this isn't just promises to David. This is a vision given to David. There it is in verse 15. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. So this is a vision for David. Now, we're going to read, as our reading, the rest of the chapter from verse 16 to verse 27 at the end. And as we read it, I want to see how David takes this vision and demonstrates his understanding and his perception of it. So reading from First Chronicles chapter 17 verse 16 to the end of the chapter. David the king came and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? What is mine house that thou hast brought me hitherto? And yet this was a small thing in thine eyes, O God, for thou hast also spoken of thy servant's house for a great while to come. 
and hast regarded me according to the estate of a man of high degree, O Lord God. What can David speak more to thee for the honour of thy servant? For thou knowest thy servant. O Lord, for thy servant's sake and according to thine own heart hast thou done all this greatness in making known all these great things. O Lord, there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation in the earth is like thy people Israel, whom God went to redeem to be his own people, to make thee a name of greatness and terribleness, by driving out nations from before thy people, whom thou hast redeemed out of Egypt. For thy people Israel didst thou make thine own people forever, and thou, Lord, becamest their God. Therefore now, Lord, let the thing that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house be established forever, and do as thou hast said. Let it even be established that thy name may be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God of Israel, even a God to Israel. And let the house of David thy servants be established before thee. For thou, O my God, hast told thy servants that thou wilt build him an house. Therefore thy servant hath found in his heart to pray before thee. And now, Lord, thou art God, and hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. Now, therefore, let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may be before thee forever. For thou blessest, O Lord, and it shall be blessed forever. Thank you, Brother John. So we see that David acknowledges that this vision spans a long time. Verse 17. And yet this was a small thing in thy eyes, O God. For thou hast also spoken of thy servant's house for a great while to come, and hast regarded me according to the estate of a man of high degree, O Lord God. This is David's perception, because David isn't told that it's for a great while to come. David perceives this. He understands. He looks behind the cover of the vision. He sees right into it, and he also appreciates that it is about his household, not a physical house. But let's also come to verse 21, where David says, And what one nation in the earth is like thy people Israel, whom God went to redeem, to be his own people, to make thee a name of greatness and terribleness, by driving out nations from before thy people, whom thou hast redeemed out of Egypt? Again, we see David's insight. This insight is that the building of his household is linked with the redemption of Israel through, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to just park that one and, and keep it in the back of your mind that David sees the promise, the vision is linked with the redemption of Israel. We could say a lot more about this passage, but the salient point for us is that David views this vision with understanding and perception. Well, it's time to look at then at Anna. I want us to go to Luke chapter 2, obviously, to the three verses I alluded to at the very beginning, to see what exactly we are told about Anna. So Luke chapter 2, and starting at verse 36. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asa. She was of great age and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity, and she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she, coming in that instant, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. 
So we have Anna. And what we're told about her is this. First of all, that she's a prophetess. Then that she's a daughter of Phanuel. Thirdly, of the tribe of Asa. Fourthly, of great age. Fifth, lived with her husband for seven years. Sixth, a widow for 84 years. Seventh, departed not from the temple. Eighth, served God with fastings and prayers. And it was night and day that she did this. Nine points. God gives us nine points and actually only two verses. Absolutely packed with detail. There's a lot here. But we need to dig a little bit deeper into each of these. Well, first of all, we need to have a look at Anna. And we will, of course, go to the Strong's Concordance, perhaps, and find out what number Anna is and go to the lexicon part. And it says of Hebrew origin. So then we have to look at the number back in the Hebrew part. We find it's the same as Hannah. And that her name is called or it means favoured. Now, I'm going to leave that one with you to decide when was Hannah favoured? When was Anna favoured? Because actually, neither of them were favoured at the beginning of their lives. But what I want to have a look at is a comparison of these two women. First of all, there is only one Hannah, just like there's only one Anna. Hannah went into the temple. Although it was the tabernacle, it is termed in 1 Samuel 1, the temple. Anna was constantly in the temple. We know Hannah prayed, and we've just seen that Anna served God with prayers. Hannah prayed for a man-child to be given to God forever. And Anna saw the man-child that would be dedicated to God forever. Hannah prays a prayer of thanksgiving. And we've just seen that Anna thanked God for what she had just witnessed, even the Messiah, though he was still a baby. Hannah was perceptive because she regarded the state of the priesthood. She saw Eli, she saw Hophni and Phinehas, and she knew that something had to be done about it. And so she prayed for a man-child to be given to God forever so that he might redress the balance and bring the priesthood back on track. Hannah was perceptive. And I put it to you that Anna was perceptive also, because she perceived that Jerusalem and all Israel needed redemption. What about that Anna was a prophetess? Well, I'd like to just very, very quickly go through all the prophetesses that we find in the Bible. And first of all, we come across Miriam in Exodus 15, and we know that the sort of words she spoke, sing ye to the Lord, and so it goes on. Deborah in Judges 4 starts out, go and draw toward. No doubt the words they spoke we are given. Huldah in 2 Kings 22, and also in 2 Chronicles 34, we're told the words that she said. Noadiah in Nehemiah, was actually, I believe, a false prophetess, because we're told that she's allied to Tobiah and Sanballat. We're not told what she said, but she was a false prophetess. There's an unnamed prophetess in Isaiah 8. Again, we're not told any words that she spoke. We know Philip's daughters prophesied, but again, we're not given the words. There's Jezebel, Revelation 2. A self-styled prophetess, obviously a false prophetess, again, no words. And then there's Anna. Anna is the only one in this list who's named and is a faithful prophetess. 
and yet for all that. Though we are told her name, though we know she's faithful, we're not told the words she spoke. And we wonder why. Is this similar to Noah, the preacher of righteousness, who we don't know one word of what he preached? But we know with Noah, what he did, they saw. Is it the same with Anna? We don't know what the words were, but we know what she did. And that was very powerful. Anna's the daughter of Phanuel. Now, there's very few that are given the genealogy, particularly women. So why does God tell us Anna's father's name? Well, first thing, of course, that we do is we, we go and we say, what does his name mean? Again, of Hebrew origin, and it's the same as Peniel or Penuel. Now, Peniel or Penuel means face of God. And I'm sure you realize that this is where Jacob saw God face to face. And he called the place Peniel. He didn't see God. He saw an angel. And some have put forward that Anna was in a similar position. God with us, Emmanuel, she saw him face to face. But I actually wonder whether the quotes from First Chronicles 4 verse 4 is what we want to take notice of. I'd like you to turn there. And this is indeed an occasion right in the middle of a whole list of names. And you know how it is on the first count, we don't really like reading them. But on the second count, when it comes to discussing them, there's usually quite a bit of silence. Well, I just wonder where there's hidden here a message for us that links Anna with this Penuel. First Chronicles 4 and verse 4. And Penuel, the father of Gedor, and Ezer, the father of Husha, these are the sons of Hur. So we know this Penuel is the son of Hur. But just look at who Hur was. Hur was the firstborn of Ephrata, the father or founder of Bethlehem. Shur is Bethlehem Ephrata, which from Micah chapter 5 we know was going to be the birthplace of the Messiah. And are we being pointed to the fact that Anna's father's namesake was actually linked with the founder of Bethlehem? It's an interesting point. Is it an important point? I'll leave you to decide. She was of the tribe of Asa. Again, we know it's of Hebrew origin, and we don't have to do much work to know that it's the tribe of Asher. Now, I'm sure by this time, there's a whole host of people shouting at the screams. We know what the name of Asher is. We know what it means. It means happy. But I wonder if anyone's made the connection back with Proverbs chapter 29. He that keepeth the law, happy is he. And you can see from the Strong's number, they're actually very closely linked. They're from the same Hebrew words. Again, is this a pointer that Anna was very focused on where there is no vision that people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. And she perceived what the vision was, that keeping the law with vision was looking forward to the time when the Messiah would fulfill the sacrifice of the Lamb. What about this little thing about of a great age? Now, I wonder if you could tell me, I'm not going to ask you to, to shout out. I wonder if you know where else in the Bible, 
we are told of someone who is of a great age. I'm not going to keep you waiting. It's unique. It's only used of Anna. She is so unique in so many ways. But then God goes on to tell us all about how she's of a great age. You see, I reckon she was at least 103. The earliest age she could be married, apparently, was 12 years old. To be precise, they say 12 years and six months. But we'll focus just on youngest she could have been married is 12. She was then widowed at the young age of 19. We would think that 19 is a decent age, or even perhaps a bit young, to get married now. She was widowed at 19. And then her present age, if we are right in our assumptions, was 103. But you see, that is not how God records it for us. If we're right in saying that she was married at 12, God says that she'd been married for seven years and then that she was widowed for 84 years. That's how God presents it. And there's a pattern here, 12, 7, 84. The maths is quite interesting. 12 times 7 equals 84. And you wonder whether we're being pointed to these numbers of 7 years and 84 years to actually bring us to the conclusion of 12 that she was married at. But you may say, well, so what? Why does God want us to know this? Perhaps it's because we are meant to perceive and understand that the child that Anna came into contact was to be first redeemer for his people Israel, 12, and then redeemer for all nations, the Gentiles, 7. Just recall from Mark 8, we're not going to turn there, but just recall how Jesus asked his disciples, when we fed the 5,000, how many baskets did we take up? This miracle was done in Jewish territory. They said 12. And he goes on to say, and when we fed the 4,000, how many baskets did you take up? And that was done in Gentile territory. They said seven. So the idea of 12 being the number of Jews and seven being the number of the Gentiles is there well established for us. Was this the point that God was trying to teach us that this that Anna saw was going to be the redeemer of both Jew and Gentile? So we've dealt with those next two points but now let's come down to departed not from the temple. And I wonder if you can remember another time when someone departed not from the house of God. Well, come back with Exodus 33, please. Exodus 33, again, is one of those chapters that we think we we know what's in it we automatically think that is the chapter where Moses asks God to show him his glory it's not that part we want to look at so it's verse 11 of Exodus 33 and the Lord spake unto Moses face to face I wonder if that's significant as well but let's just carry on. That's not the point. The Lord spake to Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend, and he turned again into the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. So Joshua departed not out of the tabernacle. We have to ask the question, why? Why didn't he? Just come back to verse 7. And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp, afar off from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the congregation. And it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord, 
went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp. Everyone that sought the Lord, you'd think after the events of Exodus 32, that they'd all be there. Just come down to verse 10. And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door. And all the people rose up and worshipped every man in his tent door. They didn't go to the tabernacle. Moses was there on his own and presumably Joshua as well went with him. Was it possible that Joshua could still see that these people weren't going to worship God. They were worshipping at their tent door. And from the other verses, we find out they were already standing. And it tells us they rose up just like they had done on the occasion of the molten calf. I put it to you, they were still at it. They were still involved in false worship. So was it that Joshua dissociated himself from this false worship and stayed and departed not from the tabernacle? Anna departed not from the temple. And we ask why? Was it because she too dissociated herself from false worship? Because outside there they were worshipping with their lips, but their heart was far from God. There's a lesson here for us, surely. Don't depart from God's house. Don't depart from his word. Don't depart from what he's told us and go and do it your own way. We need dedication. We need determination and we need distinctiveness to ensure that we dissociate ourselves from false worship. And before we leave this point, don't forget that Joshua was there amongst the people of God and Anna was there amongst the people of God. Let's move on. Anna served God with fastings and prayers. And when we come to this idea of fastings, I find that Isaiah 58 is very useful indeed. There are many passages that we could go to which tell us that people fasted and they fasted on this day and, and, and so on. But it's Isaiah 58 that really gives us an insight into what fasting was, or rather what fasting should have been. We're going to start then at verse 2 of Isaiah 58. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. It doesn't sound like Israel, does it? But that is who's being talked about here. Just coming to verse 3. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? And there were the people of God saying, look at what we're doing. We're doing what we should, and you're not taking any notice. This was a religion all about themselves. And God says, as we carry on, Behold, in the day of your fast, ye find pleasure. The revised version says, ye find your own pleasure and exact all your labours. Behold, ye fast for strife and debate and to smite with the fist of wickedness. Ye shall not fast as ye do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. Is it such a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? 
This wasn't what God expected of fasts. It wasn't to do their pleasure. It wasn't to make them look good because they were so righteous in their fasting. But God tells us what it should have been. Verse six. Is not this the fast that I've chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself with thine own flesh. This, says God, is what fasting is all about. And it goes beyond just going without food. It's going without whatever it is. Fasting was giving others something that you would normally have for yourself. Not just going without it and letting people see how good you were. Giving others something that you would normally have for yourself. That is serving God by serving your brethren and sisters. And that's what Anna did. But it also says, and prayers. Well, in serving God with prayers, it's giving to God. Brother Luke mentioned in his prayer about the sacrifice of thanksgiving. It is all about giving to God, sacrificing our time and our energy to give to God the praise and the thanks due unto his name. Anna served God by giving to others and by giving to God. So finally, she did this all the time. What dedication. And it reminds us of Psalm 1, verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And we have Paul saying, and to which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. And I'm wondering whether there are people screaming at the screens again, because that's not what it says about Anna. It says that she did it night and day. Not day and night, night and day. There's still, of course, no question about her dedication. It's 24-hour service. But why are we told that it was night and day? Some have suggested that is a link back to Genesis 1, the idea of and the evening and the morning were the first day, and the so, so on. I don't think that's most probable. But I do think the link back to Genesis 1 goes back a little bit further. Because in Genesis 1 verse 2, we read of the darkness before in verse 3, God says, let there be light. There was darkness before light. And I wonder if this phrase, night and day, is pointing to the fact that Anna perceived that the Messiah had to go through a period of darkness before coming to the light, the cross before the crown. So that's Anna. What an incredible individual. What a wonderful woman. What a remarkable role model. But what of her vision. Let's come back to Luke chapter 2. And we come now to pull our comments together and think about the vision of the prophetess Anna. And I'm sure by now you have realised that actually I'm not talking about any prophetical vision. I'm talking about her vision just like there should have been a vision in Israel, just like we should have a vision, a vision of perception and understanding. And so, verse 38 of Luke chapter 2. 
And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. You see, with Anna, her vision was one of immense perception and understanding. And she evidently shared it with seeing the Redeemer. She shared it with all those that looked for redemption. And I want to suggest to you that it wasn't a huge number of people. You see, everybody looked for the Messiah. Most people looked for a redeemer to redeem them from Roman oppression. But few people looked for a redeemer who would pay to redeem them. Come with me, please, to First Peter chapter 1. We know the words well that we're going to look at, but perhaps now in a slightly different context, they have a slightly more deeper meaning. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 18 and 19. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, you're not redeemed as by the law, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. This was what redemption was all about. And those that kept the law faithfully and with vision will have known that the Messiah had to come as a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, and therefore they must not offer anything less than that that was absolutely perfect. Now, there were those, however, who did not keep the law with perception and understanding. And they're epitomised for us in Malachi chapter 1, which I'd like us to go to, please. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 8. And God says, and if he offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if he offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? Here they were, offering without perception and understanding. And thus in the closing chapter of the Old Testament, before 400 years of no open vision. We have a marked vision, a marked contrast of their vision to the vision that came next or is recorded next, that of Anna the prophetess. Because Anna knew there was going to be a redeemer. That was her vision. And we should note that she spake of him to all who likewise had that vision. Do you think she did it just, just once or perhaps twice? I think she did it night and day in the temple, away from those who had forsaken God, only serving him with their lips. And it reminds us of another lesson for us in Malachi chapter 3. Words that we're all very well familiar with. Verse 16 of Malachi 3. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. And the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. This is a lesson for us to seek out those who fear the Lord and speak often one to another, just like Anna spoke to those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. 
Our final lesson has to come from Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. Because in Revelation chapter 5, it, it brings this, this whole idea of a vision of redemption to a marvellous conclusion. Verse 9 of Revelation 5. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. Out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, both Jew and Gentile, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. We have been redeemed to God by the love and the blood of the Lamb without blemish. Our vision, though, must be one of perception and understanding. We're not looking forward to just getting into the kingdom by the skin of our teeth. Our vision must be that we are going to be kings and priests and we shall reign with him. We shall be like him, raised above all weakness, forever past all weariness and sin and pain. E'en death itself shall have no power to reach us. When, with our risen Lord, we live and reign. What a wonderful vision we should have. Let us remember the vision of the prophetess Anna.